Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great gift of your word in which you have revealed yourself to us, most of all, in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now, as we come to the preaching of your word, that you would speak now to us through your servant as he proclaims it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open again to our sermon text uh, from earlier, which we read, Daniel chapter 8, Pew Bibles, page 745. Last week we came to the first of Daniel's apocalyptic visions in chapter 7, where he saw a vision of four beasts representing four kingdoms of man. And rising from the fourth beast, he saw a little horn who persecuted God's people, the church. But then he saw the ancient of days and one like a son of man who received dominion. In glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And he saw the reign of that final beast was taken away, and his body was given over to the fire to be burned. So, although we know that God's kingdom will be fiercely opposed, we also know that. His persecution is restrained by his hand, and in the end, only God's kingdom will last forever. Tonight, we come to Daniel's second apocalyptic vision, and this one actually zooms in, so to speak, on the previous vision. It gives greater detail to certain aspects of the first vision. The imagery is slightly different, with different animals representing two of the same kingdoms from the previous vision. And we again have a little horn, but it is a different little horn. And again, we come away with a similar message. There is persecution coming for God's people. But God is revealing this now so that his people will know that God is sovereign over all, so that they can stand fast when the trial comes. The days of persecution are numbered and they will come to an end. The need is to stand firm and persevere. And of course, that's the message for you as well tonight, brothers and sisters. When trials come, you must stand fast. God is sovereign. The trials are only for a season. But God's promise of eternal life in his presence is forever. It is life, eternal life, everlasting. And so trust in the Lord. Rest in him and stand fast. We'll work our way through this passage tonight, looking first at the two-horned ram, second at the horned goat, third at the little horn, and fourth we'll conclude considering Daniel's response and our response. So first, the two-horned ram, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. We see here that This vision occurs two years after the vision of chapter 7. It's still during the Babylonian Empire. It's also worth noting here that chapter 8 is where the language of the book of Daniel transitions from Aramaic back to Hebrew. It will be in Hebrew for the rest of the book. 
And we have the setting in verse 2. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. This location in Susa is important because it serves as one of the capitals of the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great had recently risen to the throne and united the Medes and Persians under his rule. And here in this location, Daniel will see a vision concerning, at first, the Medo-Persian Empire. And continuing in verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. You see, this ram has two horns, the higher horn likely representing Persia and the lower one representing Media, as Persia is the more prominent half of this combined Medo-Persian empire. It's charging toward the west, toward the north, toward the south, as it expands in those directions, and no kingdom can stand before it. While the ram is not initially identified, in the second part of the vision, Daniel has given an angel to interpret the vision to him. Verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having an appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, Gabriel is one of only two angels who are named in Scripture, Gabriel along with Michael. His name means strong man of God. And he is the same angel who also appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and then to Mary, the mother of Jesus, both times in Luke chapter 1. So Gabriel draws near to Daniel and begins to explain to Daniel some aspects of the vision. And so in verse 20, it's made clear that this ram represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. That this kingdom is followed by another. And that is what Daniel sees next, the two or the horned goat. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. As mighty as the Medo-Persian Empire was, it quickly fell before Alexander the Great and the Greeks in 331 BC. And the angel Gabriel identifies the goat as the king of Greece in verse 21. This goat is depicted as particularly swift, his feet not even touching the ground as he flies westward. Uh, or eastward, and that aptly describes Alexander's conquest as he conquered nearly all of Asia and even into India in just a few short years. The goat strikes the ram with his horn, he tramples him down, 
And so the Greek Empire succeeds the Medo-Persian Empire. But Alexander's reign was not to last long, as he died young, only 32 years old. The aftermath of his death is described in verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is also explained by the, the angel in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And so we know from history, following Alexander's death, civil war broke out in the Greek Empire, and it was divided into four parts, into four kingdoms, led by Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. As we move forward, the focus will be on the Seleucid Empire, out of which will arise the little horn, a little horn who becomes great. Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This horn, which grows out of the Greek empire, begins small, but he grows exceedingly great. In the description of this horn, we see many parallels to the little horn described in chapter 7. In our interpretation of chapter 7, I said that little horn represented the Antichrist, who is to come before Christ returns. Here in this chapter, we see a similar figure who strongly persecutes God's people, but who already came in the second century B.C., Almost all scholars agree that these prophecies of the little horn are fulfilled by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, a ruler from the Greek Seleucid Empire who ruled from 175 to 164 BC. Here in verse 9, his growing great toward the south and toward the east is fulfilled through his military campaigns against Egypt in the south and uh, Asia in the east. The glorious land is a reference to the promised land of Israel, which was under Antiochus' control during his reign. And verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. Here in verse 10, we have the little horn Antiochus being triumphant in some sort of spiritual warfare against God's heavenly host, that is, his angels. It's hard to know exactly what this looks like. But this successful battle against even God's heavenly hosts can only be because God has allowed it. And the inevitable result will be the persecution of God's people under his hand, under the hand of this little horn who has now become so great. Looking to the angel's Interpretation in verse 23, Antiochus is there described as a king of bold face. That is, he is ruthless, he is fierce. And it also describes him as one who understands riddles. And in this context, that means he is skilled in political intrigue. Then verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Here we see the greatness of his power and the destructiveness of his reign. 
We'll see in a moment that beyond his military exploits in Egypt and throughout Asia, much of his destruction was focused on Jerusalem and the people of God. He not only destroyed mighty men, both high priests and other high officials, but he also slaughtered a large number of God's people, the saints. Historians approximate 80,000 Jews in all that he killed. And notice what it says at the beginning of verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. In other words, his power was granted to him. He is a feral beast who is destroying, but a feral beast on a leash. And the Lord has him in hand. And one thing that's not said explicitly in this chapter is that this great persecution was coming because God's people were being unfaithful, because they had departed from him. And so he was disciplining them for their own good. It's not said explicitly here in the chapter, but that has always been the case in the past, and I believe that is the case in this instance as well. Continuing with verse 11. It became great, that is the little horn, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now this verse is building on the conflict we saw in verse 10 between Antiochus and God's heavenly host. And now we see that his greatness is rivaling even the prince of the host, which can also be translated the commander of the army. Uh, The interpretation of this is debated, and many don't take it this direction, but the last time we've seen this title, the commander of the army, the commander of the Lord's army, was in Joshua. And there it was actually the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And you recall, he appeared to Joshua, and Joshua fell down and worshipped him. And he had to take off his sandals because the, the ground he was standing on was holy ground. Now, the difficulty with this interpretation is why, how could we possibly compare this this blasphemer to the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ? But what does seem to line up here is that this man is not the, but he is an antichrist. He is setting himself up in opposition to Christ, and he is persecuting Christ's Old Testament church. In fact, Antiochus' title, which he gave himself, Epiphanes, it was in fact a blasphemous claim. Epiphanes meaning God manifest. That's the title he gave himself. But others preferred to call him behind his back Epimenes, the bad, the madman. And perhaps that was more accurate. He was a madman to set himself in opposition to the Lord and his people. And his opposition will ultimately fail, for the Lord will defeat him. But for a time, his little horn waxed great. In the second part of verse 11, we see what he did to the worship of the Jewish people. Antiochus' meddling with the Jewish worship in the temple began by first deposing the high priest and sending his own man, a man named Jason, in office. Later, when a second man, Menelaus, bribed him for the position of high priest, he said, I can offer you a little bit more for that position. His first candidate then came back, and he caused a riot. And Antiochus wanted to wash his hands of the whole business. He decided to abolish Judaism altogether. 
And so he plundered the temple in Jerusalem. He entered the Holy of Holies. He desecrated by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And in the end, he turned the temple into a temple to the god Zeus. He also outlawed circumcision just for good measure. And so verse 11 was fulfilled. The regular burnt offering was taken away. The sanctuary was overthrown. And we have verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. His verse describes a human army being given over to Antiochus at the time or in connection with the ceasing of the regular sacrifice. And the word translated transgression could also be translated here, rebellion. It could refer to the riot caused by the high priest or the deposed high priest Jason, which led to Antiochus' decision to outlaw Judaism. But there was actually more than one occasion on which Antiochus slaughtered a large number of Jews in the temple courts. So in summary, we see that Antiochus has replaced true worship with idolatry. He has replaced truth with falsehood. He has thrown the truth to the ground. Here it's also worth considering the strategy that the evil one has used to undermine God's people. He has taken away the place they gather for worship and turned it into a temple to false gods. He has taken away their daily offering, their daily worship. If they are wise, they will continue to gather and meet for worship in another place. They will continue to pray daily, even though their normal morning and evening sacrifice has been taken away. But you know how an interruption to your regular schedule and habits can often throw you off completely. And you have to completely rebuild your habit from scratch. Let this be an exhortation to not let an interruption keep you from your regular daily prayer, your regular weekly gathering with God's people. The evil one is eager to attack God's people at these very places. Don't let them be weak points in your armor. Don't let anything keep you from drawing near to the Lord in regular prayer and worship. Next we see that the little horn's days are numbered. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. God's people are suffering. They cry out, How long, O Lord? Here there is a definite answer. 2,300 evenings and mornings. There are two equally possible interpretations of that number. Taking each evening and morning separately, referring to the evening and morning sacrifices, we have 1,150 days, which would refer to the slightly over three years that there was no daily offering. From 167 B.C. until the temple was restored and rededicated in 164 B.C. by Judas Maccabeus. This event is still celebrated today by Jews each year at Hanukkah. Alternately, a full 2,300 days interpretation would run from 172 B.C. 
when the non-Zedekite Menelaus bribed Antiochus to become high priest and then running again to the restoration of the temple. Whichever interpretation is correct, the emphasis, the point of the vision is that this trial is for a set period of time. The days are numbered and therefore God's people can persevere. While Psalm 79 wasn't written on this occasion, it is certainly appropriate. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. What a lament. The Lord is saying that this desecration of his holy temple would surely come to an end after 2300 evenings and mornings. And as we know, that is exactly what came to pass. There's one more verse to look at about this little whore in verse 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Here we see that he causes all sorts of deceit and dishonesty to flourish under his rule. And although he opposes even the prince of princes, which again may be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will also ultimately be broken by the Lord himself, by a divine act. According to the book of Second Maccabees, which is found in the Apocrypha, during a military campaign in Persia, Antiochus was retreating in his chariots when he suddenly doubled over in pain and died. In the end, he was struck down by the hand of God. And we have the last verse of the vision, verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. I'm not exactly sure what is meant by sealing up the vision, since obviously Daniel wrote it down and he published it in his book. In fact, it seems that is actually the intention, that he is to preserve it for future generations. For as Gabriel says, it refers to many days from now. With Daniel's record of it, it would serve to encourage the Jews for many generations, and especially when the time of its fulfillment came. This then brings us to Daniel's response and our response. We get Daniel's response in verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. You see the effect the vision had on Daniel. He is overwhelmed by it. He is appalled by it, so much so that he falls ill for several days. His vision seems to affect him even more negatively than the previous vision in chapter 7. And that may be understandable because the negative aspects of the horn of Antiochus are not balanced out in this vision by the 
positive aspects of the everlasting kingdom of God as they were back in chapter 7. Now, it is true, there are positives here. Antiochus' days are numbered, and he is ultimately destroyed. But that's really the only highlight in the entire vision. Everything else is very negative. So Daniel is left without a full understanding, and he is greatly appalled by what he does understand of this vision. Now, even though all this evil is far in the future, it grieves Daniel to know that these things will befall God's people. Before we think poorly of Daniel for this response, we should compare it to the response of King Hezekiah when he received a prophecy of coming judgment from the prophet Isaiah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Second Kings twenty sixteen through 19 See the callousness of Hezekiah. He didn't care, even if his own son suffered as long as he did not. Compare that to Daniel's overwhelming grief at the suffering to come upon God's people many days from his own. Daniel had a kingdom mindset, and it grieves him to know what will befall God's people. And yet, even with the knowledge of this great evil coming, when he recovered, he got back to work faithfully serving the pagan king just as he had been called to do. Now we must ask, as we've seen Daniel's response, what's the application for us? What should our response be to this vision? We know that the things predicted in this vision have, for the most part, already been fulfilled, even if there are some specifics which are still difficult to interpret even after the fact. We can be amazed at the accuracy of the predictive prophecy given almost 400 years before its fulfillment, although that's certainly no challenge for the Lord who is sovereign over all of history. But for us, we know that there is still the prophecy of another little horn to come, the final Antichrist, and after him, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ bringing in the last day, the day of judgment. Peter counsels us how to live in light of all this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. Since we are expecting his coming, 
we need to make ready. And that means devoting ourselves to our sanctification now. Laying aside every weight and the sin, sin which clings so closely. To run with endurance the race marked out for us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do so, we know that trials and persecutions may come, will come. Whether it is the Antichrist or other Antichrist, for there are, there will be many. We will face trials and we must persevere by holding fast to the Lord. We know that he is with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The kingdoms of this world will rise and fall, but Christ is reigning and his kingdom will never pass away. And so if you find yourself praying with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, know that there is an answer. Weeping may tarry for a night or even for many nights, but joy comes in the morning. And when Christ returns, he will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more, nor shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things will have passed away. Since then, we are awaiting his coming. Let us make ready. Let us live expectantly and let us persevere. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, our great God, we thank you for the way that you have revealed to your servant Daniel and now to us the way that you are working all throughout history. And this gives us great confidence that even in the trials that you bring into our lives, you are at work. That you have set the number of the days of our lives, you have set the number of the days of our trials. And so when we pray, how long, O Lord, we know that there is a number set and you will give us relief on that appointed day and you will give us the strength to stand. Lord, help us to stand fast, to hold fast, to persevere, clinging to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Fill us with the Holy Spirit to give us that strength to keep pressing forward. And even as we come now to the table, feed us, with that spiritual food and that spiritual drink, which will give us the strength to keep, uh, keep pressing forward. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.